I wonder, can you think about a time when you didn't feel welcome somewhere? Maybe at some kind of social event or gathering, someone might even have been as blunt as to say to you, what are you doing here? Or maybe, and perhaps more usually, no one says anything, but you just know. You know, people are kind of looking at one another and, and whispering and looking over in your direction. And it's not a nice feeling not to be one of them. And if you're anything like me, you just want to get out of there. And a number of years ago, I went on holiday. It was before I was married. I went with my family to France on holiday. And we were doing a bit of sightseeing. And it was absolutely roasting. I'm sure we were a sight for sore eyes, the sweat lashing off us and whatever else. My dad in particular does not do well in the heat. We were a bit grumpy. We were tired. We were very warm. We were extremely hungry. And I suggest there may even have been one or two of those dodgy pairs of sunglasses that you saw earlier. So we wanted to get something to eat, and we went into this restaurant. We, we stopped, and we found this place, and the menu looked okay. So we went inside. And we must have looked absolutely ridiculous. Dressed like tourists, all, all the rest, probably a bit burnt. But this restaurant was something else. You know, the waiters were in their fancy attire, their bow ties, and their waistcoats, and, and their trays perfectly balanced. They were immaculate and, and, and there were huge chandeliers dangling down and each table was set out perfectly with too many sets of knives and forks for me to know what to do with them. And all the waiting staff started to look at one another and look at us and whisper among themselves and look at us. And, and you could tell that something wasn't quite right. But anyway, one of the staff came over and before we could even say anything, he said, I'm sorry. We have no space. And there were dozens of free tables, not reserved, dozens of free tables. And we said to him, but, but there's loads of tables here. And he just looked down his nose at us and he said, you cannot have these. And we knew we weren't welcome. But welcome makes such a difference, doesn't it? When you know you are welcome somewhere. It helps us belong. It, it puts us at ease. It determines whether we're going to stay somewhere or whether we're going to get shot and leave. And it's crucial for church. We're going to think about that this morning. Welcome is crucial for church. You've probably noticed in that nearly everything that Marty does or if there's a new event coming up or a post on social media, you'll see the words, everyone is welcome at Ravenhill. That's his big thing. And that's definitely my experience coming into Ravenhill and my family's too. So I'm not, I'm not preaching this because I think that you know, you're really unwelcoming people. But I think we all need to be challenged by God's words because it's important in the church that we are a place of welcome. And it's important because Jesus often welcomes people that we don't expect. You see, firstly, Jesus welcomes people that this world rejects. Jesus welcomes people that this world rejects. We read a few moments ago from Luke chapter 5 that Jesus encountered a man with leprosy. We know the word leprosy covers a number of conditions in the Bible. We don't know exactly what the issue was. But if you had leprosy, if you had a skin condition, you were ceremonially unclean. In other words, you couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't join your people to worship. You were excluded. But this effectively led to you being cut off altogether from all society. Certainly, religious people would have nothing to do with you. They didn't want to touch you and become unclean themselves. 
You've maybe seen some kind of dramatic adaptation of one of these biblical stories, maybe with children and they're ringing bells and they shout, unclean, unclean. And that's not too far from the truth. But this man wasn't just a leper. In verse 12, Luke tells us, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Not just a little bit, not just he could get away with putting his hand in his pocket if he had pockets and and nobody would see. He was covered in leprosy. People would have given this man a very wide berth, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Others thought that if they touched this man, they would become unclean. But Jesus knew that if he touched this man, and it's striking that Luke highlights that he did reach out and physically touch the man. He could have just said the word, but he touched him. Jesus would not become unclean through this, but instead the man would become clean. And that's what happened. This man whom society had rejected, Jesus welcomed and accepted. And Jesus changed his life. People sometimes say that Jesus' ministry, because of things like this, was was really radical, very different from what we see in the Old Testament. And Jesus' ministry certainly was radical, but it's not really different from what you see in the Old Testament. God didn't change his mind on some of these issues. God has always provided for those that society has rejected or forgotten. Sometimes when we think of the Old Testament law, we might think of the Ten Commandments, the familiar things, or, or even some of the stranger laws that are harder to understand. But there's so much in the law about love for the underprivileged and for the forgotten. Exodus 22 and 22 says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 27, 19 says, cursed is anyone who perverts justice due to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And I could go on, there are dozens of verses. In Isaiah chapter 1, when God condemns his people to exile, he cites the fact that they've overlooked the vulnerable as one of the reasons for sending them to exile in Babylon. In Jesus, we see the perfect fulfillment of the law, one who is just and sinless, but one who welcomes vulnerable people, rejected people. It would be absolutely right to say that God doesn't have favorites, but it might just be okay to say that there's a special place in God's kingdom for the poor, for the marginalized, even for children. Today, um, it's not an anniversary that many people will be marking, but it marks the 37th anniversary of the death of a singer and songwriter and evangelist called Keith Green. Some of you might have heard of him. If you haven't, I'm sure you know the song, There is a Redeemer. Um, His wife wrote it and, and he sang it and published it and made it famous. But he died tragically 37 years ago today, aged just 29. But his story is an absolutely fascinating one. Both he and his wife were brought up um, Jewish, um, but came to faith as adults. And as Keith read the scriptures, he became really perplexed because he read stories like the one we read today, and he could see in Jesus all this welcome for the outsider and love for people who society rejected. But when he looked at the church, he saw comfortable Christians, in his view, not doing very much. So he did something. He opened up his home. He offered food and accommodation to anyone who needed it. He didn't make money out of his music. He put all the money into that, into helping others. And of course, this attracted people into his neighborhood who normally would not have been there. 
drug users and prostitutes and, and those with other addictions and social problems. And some of the neighbors didn't like it. In fact, the next door neighbor put the house up for sale and Keith used the money from his music career to buy that house and just expand. And it was wonderful. And eventually about 70 people lived in or used that center and they had to move on even again to somewhere bigger. But Keith didn't become unclean by welcoming those people in. He didn't become a drug user or anything like that. But instead, many of them found Jesus. If you have a spare hour, go onto YouTube and search for the Keith Green story. It's worth, it's worth watching. But Jesus welcomes people who this world rejects. And we are called to do the same. And also Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus welcomes sinners. In verses 27 and 28 of Luke 5, we read about how Jesus called Levi a tax collector. And again, this would have been a a reject from society in a sense, because yes, he had a good job and he had money, but he likely stole money from people when he was collecting their taxes. And because of that, he was seen as a traitor to his own people, working for the enemy, working for the Romans, an outsider, someone hated. And again, we see Jesus reaching out to him, but there's more here. Levi throws a banquet for Jesus at his house. And Luke tells us there in verse 29, a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus gives this incredible reply. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One translation puts it like this. I've not come to call those who think that they're good, but those who know that they're sinners. Jesus had a track record of this in his life. This particular incident is recorded in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, but there are loads of others. Think of the criminal beside Jesus on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. A few weeks ago when we were thinking about true worship, we looked at Jesus' encounter in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman, again an outsider, one whom society had rejected, but also a sinner. She'd had several husbands and the man she was with at that time was not her husband. But Jesus showed her a welcome. What about the woman in John chapter 8 caught in adultery? Jesus isn't soft on her sin. He tells her to go and leave her life of sin. But he also welcomes her. He also says, I do not condemn you. And this is the gospel for us. We are sinners and Jesus calls us to repentance, to leave our life of sin. But also when we confess our sins, he says, I do not condemn you. That's how it is for us. This is Jesus' pattern. And this is how it is for others too. No one is too far away. No one is beyond the saving power of Jesus Jesus welcomes sinners, not sin, but Jesus welcomes sinners, and we're called to do that too. I want to tell you a story about a lady who I knew. It's a true story. The lady was called Lillian, and back in the late 1970s when she was a teenager, I wasn't around, she became pregnant. Outside of marriage, in fact, Lillian never married, and she found herself in a very difficult position. She was going to be a single mum. The dad wasn't going to be around. She didn't have other family willing to help her. 
there was a, some stuff going on with the family that she never really told me about, but I knew that they weren't supportive. They weren't there. And so she had a wee baby boy called William. And she and William ended up having to move away from where they were. And they moved in, into a little village not a million miles from here. And however it happened, um, she bumped into the Presbyterian minister one day of that local village and she ended up coming along. She tried another couple of churches, but people had kind of kept her on the fringes. But she felt welcomed. Questions weren't asked. They were simply accepted as they were. And don't get me wrong, Lillian would have been under no illusions about the church's position on marriage and, and all the rest of that. But she was welcomed anyway. And in time she came to faith. William grew up in the church. He went to everything, CE and Boys Brigade and, and all the rest. And he came to faith too. A couple of years ago now, Lillian passed away. She'd been ill for much of her adult life. She was only 56. But at her funeral, her son, now the Reverend William Hayes, now a Presbyterian minister himself, said that her life had been on the downward spiral. He doesn't know where she would have ended up. But because of the welcome that they received when they went to that church, she's in glory today. Because of the welcome they received, they were able to find Jesus, both of them. And he looks forward to glory someday too. Lillian was a sinner. She would have openly said that. She talked very openly about the problems in her life. But Jesus stepped in. Jesus welcomes sinners. And we, his church, his body here on earth, are the instruments that do that. He saved us sinners, and he'll save other sinners too. And then thirdly, there's a particular way that we welcome people when they become disciples of Jesus. Uh, and Marty has asked me to do this um, as part of the church essentials. And the way we welcome people when they become new believers is in baptism. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. When you go and make disciples, baptize them. That's how to welcome them. That's how to initiate them, if you will, into the church. That's what the early church did. That's what the disciples were doing, even when Jesus was alive here on his earthly ministry. John's disciples did it too. So what sort of welcome is baptism? Well, it's a welcome that symbolizes, I suppose, repentance and new life. One of the things about becoming a disciple, about following Jesus, is the need for repentance. Repentance is a kind of a, a discipline. And if you think about it, those two words, we don't often put them together. Discipline and disciple, they kind of look like one another. And in fact, linguistically, they are related to one another if you look them up. Because to become a disciple of Jesus is to change your discipline. Think about it this way. Um, I'm sure you'll know the Olympic champion Mo Farah, Sir Mo Farah, I should say. He used to run 5,000 and 10,000 meter races. And the way he ran was basically he, he kept up the pace for the first number of laps. He was usually at the front or sometimes he was just near the front. But then in the last couple of laps, he would just take off and nobody could catch up with him. Nobody could keep up when he upped the pace in those last thousand meters. But a few years ago, as he got a bit older, he's not an old man, but as he got a bit older, he realized that he just couldn't maintain that kind of running style any longer. His legs just wouldn't do it for him. So what did he do? 
he changed his discipline. He actually started training for marathons, and even though that's a longer distance, it, it's just a completely different style of running. It, it's slower, it's steadier. Usually after 25 and a half miles, you don't really feel like a sprint finish. So instead of training and being disciplined to run 5,000 meters, he changed discipline. He changed his discipline in terms of his training. He changed his discipline in terms of what he ate. He changed his discipline in terms of how he ran, what shoes he wore. He was still running, but the discipline had completely changed. And all of us, no matter where we're coming from this morning, have a, a discipline. We're discipled to something. We're learning from something. Something is teaching us and leading us. If you're not a believer, then I suppose it's the world. It's your own feelings. It's ourselves. It's other people. But when we repent, when we change direction, that's what repentance literally means. When we change our discipline, then things change. We're still following something, but it's changed. We've stopped following the world, and we've started to follow Jesus. And that's what baptism symbolizes. In fact, baptism is even more uh, stark than that. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 uses the language that we've been buried with Jesus in baptism and also raised with him in baptism through our faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It's about death and life, a change of direction, turning away from death and sin to life. When we baptize people, we welcome them and we celebrate the new life that they enjoy in being united to Jesus Christ. Now, as Presbyterians, we do believe in the baptism of infants, the children of believers. And I, don't have this mor- I don't have the time really this morning to go into the detail of all of that, but I'd be happy to talk to anyone who has questions about that because I know it's not something that we always have complete agreement about. But we believe it because in Scripture we see when someone comes to faith, their family is baptized. We believe it because in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 that we looked at a few weeks ago, Peter says in verse 39, this promise is to you and to your children. We believe that much in the same way that circumcision marked coming into God's people in the old covenant, so baptism marks the same in the new covenant. The child doesn't know anything about it in the same way that the child wouldn't have known anything about circumcision. And that's fine because we don't believe that they're saved by baptism, but we baptize them when the parents profess faith because that child will be brought up in the church. They're part of the family. And we hope and pray that one day they will profess that faith for themselves. We bring up the children in the discipline of church life. We disciple them. Not in the harsh sense of the word discipline, but in the sense of being part of church life, always being taught the ways of Jesus, hearing the word and being part of a loving Christian community. Disciplined in the sense of being constant and consistent, being prayed with and for often in the hope that they may come to know the love of the Savior. And maybe when the parents don't feel that they can in good conscience make those vows, we still want to welcome children in. And that's why, I don't know what the practice is in this congregation, but within many of our churches we'll give thanksgivings and dedications. I think we need to think carefully about doing that and maybe being more consistent as a church in terms of how we do that. But I think it's great that children are welcomed nonetheless because Jesus welcomed children and commanded the disciples not to hinder them coming to him. But in welcoming people into church through baptism, whether it's as children or as believing adults, that's not the end of the road. What did Jesus say? It's on the screen. 
Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. With baptism comes the teaching of Jesus. With welcome comes instruction. You're not really welcoming them if you're not also going to teach them. The sacrament of baptism, the outward sign of the word, always goes with the teaching of the word. John Calvin said that the sacraments have the same office, the same function as the word of God preached to offer and set forth Christ to us and in him the treasures of heavenly grace. These have to be taught. I think sometimes when new people come into church, we're maybe a little bit afraid of being a bit too churchy, you know, don't go too heavy on things. There's a certain extent to which there's probably truth in that. We are familiar, if you're a regular attender, of when to stand and when to sit and when to speak or sing. And and some of the words that we use, you maybe learned them when you were little, sacrifice and atonement and sanctification and holy and grace and whatever other words we might use But what about people who haven't been to church before? They probably don't know what those things mean. So we still have to teach these things. But maybe we need to do it in a way that actually explains them. And we shouldn't be afraid if somebody comes into church beside us and is sitting there and you don't think they really know what's going on. Just to draw alongside them and say, well, this is what we're doing now. And just explain a little bit about it, even in simple terms. If we really love people and want to welcome them into our fellowship, We want them to know Jesus too. And so we don't need to apologize for our faith or shy away from it. But we need to be bold and teach it. Of course, the same goes for our children too as we welcome them in our midst. I suppose that's more obvious. Proverbs 22 and 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Part of the welcome is pointing people to Jesus. But it's great to know that we don't do this in our own strength. Again, the words of Jesus in sending us to make disciples and baptizing them and teaching them everything he's commanded us. Then he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As we do this, as we make disciples, as we baptize them and teach them, as we do what we do Sunday by Sunday in proclaiming the word and celebrating the sacraments together, Jesus is with us. He's always with us as we obey his great commission. I wonder this morning how you would rate Ravenhill out of 10 for welcome. I'm sure you're nowhere near that little restaurant in in France that didn't welcome me and didn't like the look of me. How would you rank yourself as part of that? Do you welcome people who are more or less the same as you? What about people who maybe come in who are a bit different? from a different background to us? How are we doing as a church at making disciples and welcoming them, baptizing them and teaching them? We all have a part to play in this. It's all fine and well, somebody up at the front baptizing people or teaching people well, and I'm not saying that I'm teaching people well. I'll let you be the judge of that. But we all need to play our part in welcoming the outsider, the new believer, the person who doesn't know how we do things around here, the person who has different ideas about how things should be done around here. Jesus welcomes. Jesus forgives. Jesus heals. And we are his body here on earth. We are his ambassadors, his representatives here. So let's look to him, to his example, and pray that he would transform our hearts and make us more like him. Let's pray.
Father, we do again give you thanks for your word. And Father, we thank you that again that Jesus did step down into our darkness. Thank you that he has forgiven our sins. Thank you that he reached out to us as sinners, as people completely undeserving of his grace and his mercy. So Lord, help us as his body to do the same. Lord, I pray for each one of us that you would look at our hearts, search our hearts, and Lord, change us where we need that. Lord, help us to be drawn to the people that you would draw to yourself, Lord, so that they can hear the good news of Jesus. Lord, may no one be excluded, and may this be a place where everyone is truly welcome in the name of Jesus. Amen.